You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. On this uh, nippy, rainy morning, Saturday, here in Melbourne. And uh, if you're listening to this podcast, then uh, you might like to know that... uh, the announcement I'm making right now is probably over and done with because today there's going to be a uh, a rally outside the State Library at 2pm in support of the uh, permanent visas for refugees. It's a kick-out Morrison rally endorsed by the Victorian Trades Hall Council, the ANMF, the, uh, that's the Nurses and Midwives Federation, the uh, National Tertiary Education Union, the Maritime Union of Australia and HACSU and there will be speakers from uh, all those places including the United Workers Union and the Migrant Workers Centre. You may be aware of uh, uh, activity out at MITRE uh, in Broad Meadows where people have been uh, moved to Christmas Island. This is all based on uh, the... Uh, 501 section of the Migration Act, which is uh, around uh, the character of uh, people who are not permanent residents. It was fascinating to listen to uh, Friday Breakfast yesterday, uh, an interview with a person who was from, whose uh, descent is Tongan, but he came here as a baby and is now a person who has got. 11 children and is a grandfather, has been swept up and taken off to Mitre. Uh, He had uh, been in prison and served his time, he said, and it is extraordinary to him that, uh, and to us, that uh, the uh, department that can uh, go through, uh, has enough staff, administrative staff, to go through meticulously to find people on uh, who have served their time, who have built a life here, who know nothing about the countries of origin that they uh, came from, are being swept up. Their, their names are being pulled out of lists uh, that the department is going through. This is the same uh, administrative system that is unable to uh, uh, deal with the... Uh, uh, permanent visa applications of uh, migrant workers who have to keep resitting their English exams because they haven't been processed for two years. You know, there's a really strange uh, thing going on. Anyway, there were demonstrations 
uh, on last Tuesday. I, there uh, and there was violence between police and uh, some demonstrators were quite badly hurt. Uh, but uh, they did manage to take away uh, people. And uh, if you want to find out more uh, details about what happened, I really recommend you go back to the podcast to Friday's Breakfast uh, because there was a fantastic extended interview from a person who's actually inside MITRE describing what's going on there. Uh, and as I said today, May the 7th, uh, there is a kick out Morrison permanent visas for refugees rally 2pm outside the State Library here in Melbourne. The um, Just as to uh, keep you in the, uh, uh, keep you aware of what's going on as an aftermath of uh, the shooting in the Northern Territory and the and the release of the uh, policeman who was involved in that shooting. Uh, the Unidamu elders have been calling, are calling for a National Day of Action on the 18th of June 2020. It marks the 15th year of the Northern Territory intervention and they're calling for no police guns, uh, stop racism in the court system and or discriminatory Northern Territory intervention powers, First Nations communities control now. And they, um, if you want to know more about it, go to hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag Justice for Walker and www.karenjalamurajari.org. That's K-A-R-R-I-N-J-A-R-L-A-M-U-W-A-J-A-R-R-I.org. I'll put that up on the uh, podcast uh, on the program today, we're going to investigate housing affordability. Uh, we're going to talk to Emma Dawson from Per Capita. She's just been involved in a report that's come out called Housing Affordability. Surprise, surprise, Housing for Affordability Report. And she outline, uh, lays out why, why housing prices are so high why it's impossible for uh, working people in Australia to actually easily buy a house uh, and uh, what's actually happened and that it's not actually um, an act of God, it's actually an act of government. Uh, we move on to go around the corner from 3CR to Richard Wynne's office. Now, Richard Wynne is the uh, uh, minister in charge of housing Um uh, in Victoria, and uh, there was a rally there on Friday night uh, by the residents of uh, and the supporters of 240 Wellington Street here in Collingwood. Uh, they're going to build two uh, eight-storey buildings on the green space in that uh, very uh, building-heavy er- laden area. Um, for social housing. Uh, but there's more to it. As one of the demonstrators says, it all looks good, this social housing build, but the devil is in the detail. Uh, we hear from Kevin, who is going to... Oh, he's actually on fire to, uh, today as he goes through, rakes through the week. And we're going to end on uh, outside uh, Brunswick Town Hall where the Moreland Council workers from the ASU and the MWU 
are on strike, or they were on strike that day on uh, Wednesday, and we hear what's going on because they are an example of a whole range of different uh, workers who are really frustrated by the fact that they're being offered a pay cut uh, lower than uh, inflation increases in pay so that they are actually bearing the burden of uh, the system which is uh, giving large uh, profits to the uh, a very small percentage of the population. Uh, so we'll hear from them. All right, before we get on, a few announcements. Online and in cinema. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Join Free Palestine Melbourne in remembering the Nakba at a vigil at the State Library at 12 midday on Sunday the 15th of May. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic and commemorates the displacement and ethnic cleansing of more than 700,000 Palestinians from their homes to create the State of Israel in 1948. The Nakba continues with refugees from 1948 still living in refugee camps and more Palestinians being displaced as Israeli settlements continue to be built on stolen Palestinian land. The event will include naming and acknowledging many of the towns and villages destroyed by Israel. Nakba Day Vigil, midday, Sunday, the 15th of May, on the steps of the State Library of Victoria. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. A lot of traffic on the steps of uh, the State Library of Victoria. Lots of issues, lots of things to commemorate, lots of things to remember. Uh, As I said, we're going to go straight to a chat I had with Emma Dawson. She's the CEO of Per Capita. It's a uh, think tank. And uh, they were commissioned to uh, look into housing affordability. Uh, And uh, I won't waste your time nattering. Let's hear from Emma. Per capita has just uh, finished doing an in-depth look at uh, uh, housing prices and why they're so out of reach for many Australians. Can you uh, give us a little understanding of some of the key findings of your report? Sure. So we were commissioned by the V&F Housing Enterprise Foundation, which is a new philanthropic trust, to undertake a landscape view of the entire housing market or of housing affordability in Australia. We didn't want to just look at ownership, Annie. We wanted to look at everyone, so private renters, people in social and community housing, etc., um, to really get a sense of what the, what the affordability crisis is, and it is a crisis, and who it was affecting. And what we found is it's basically affecting everyone that doesn't own more than one property. Um, If you're an average homeowner, you may be feeling wealthier because your house has gone up significantly in value over the last few years. But unless you sell or refinance that house, you can't really reap the benefits of it. You can borrow more against the equity in your home to make home improvements or buy another property. 
um, but then you're still taking on more debt and you always have to have somewhere to live. For renters, we're seeing significant increases in rental stress and in mortgage stress um, throughout Australia, but particularly in lower and middle income areas, outer suburban areas, regional areas and rural areas. And at social and community, so public and community housing, social housing, uh, we've seen our share of uh, housing stock, that is social housing, decline from 6% 30 years ago to about 3% today. And the people that need that uh, low-income housing, uh, secure housing provided by the state or by non-profit um, community housing providers are waiting sometimes up to 10 years to get a place. So there's a lot of pressure throughout the system and there are not, there are simply not enough ways and enough um, pathways for Australians to find themselves a secure and decent home. And so uh, this is not just something that's happened out of the blue. It's been growing over 30 years. It's a policy-driven result, isn't it? It is, yeah. So we found probably the the single biggest driver of accelerating land prices was the introduction of the capital gains tax discount in 1999. Uh, at that point, we saw land values in Australia really take off as people were encouraged by that taxation policy to use property as a place to park and grow capital. To, to, if you've got a bit of extra money, put it into property because you will realise a significant capital gain as the market appreciates and you'll only pay 50% of the, of the tax you would have paid on that capital gain. We actually cap Sorry, we actually tax income from the growth of assets much more lightly than we tax income from work. And so what that and a, and a series of other policy issues on both the de demand and supply side, negative gearing, um, uh, and then on the supply side, a lack of um, appropriate medium density housing in the suburbs uh, and inner and middle suburbs where people want to work to, within commutes of their jobs and a failure to invest adequately in enough uh, a social housing stock or to maintain and repair the social housing stock that we have. All of these things together have created a situation in which our housing market has become financialised. It's become a means of growing wealth for those who have capital and it has not uh, public policy has been focused very much on that wealth building aspect and not on where it should be in housing policy, which is ensuring everyone can have a decent home. Now let's go to how public housing and social housing actually affects the uh, actual cost of houses and uh, land, how it has a positive effect for everybody. Well, if we build more social housing, um, what we effectively do, and we create more secure social housing for people at the lower end of the income scale, and particularly those people on fixed incomes like pensions and, and income support, um, then what that does is take pressure off the low end of the rental market, the private rental market, which means there are more affordable private rentals for people in the middle band who can then save more adequately to become homeowners. But more broadly, Having an adequate supply of good, secure, decent quality public housing and community housing as well is absolutely essential to ensure that we don't have... There's 10% of people in this country have persistently lived in poverty now for 30 plus years. We haven't made a dent in that rate of, of really low... Um, low-income families, people that, that cannot escape poverty. The number one thing we could do is build more houses for those families so that they can have the security of a roof over their head and begin to build a, a better life for the next generation. Um, our failure to invest in public housing isn't 
just a failure to build more stock, but it's also a failure to keep uh, to maintain existing public housing stock. Uh, and and one of the the things we've seen is state governments selling off public housing that, that that's in regions of of high property value. So most famously in Sydney, overlooking the harbour, um, and then not use the proceeds of those sales of very valuable property to build even as much um, public housing, certainly not to build more uh, in other areas. There's also a tendency to push social housing into um, into defined regions. Um, there's a lot of planning restrictions and a lot of um, residents who object to having social housing in their community. And what we know from overseas practice is that when social housing is scattered throughout the city, it works best and that people need to, to be, have a choice of locations in which they can live. Uh, so investing in public housing, government-owned, government-operated public housing is the most important thing that governments could do right now and increasing community housing which is still social housing but is operated by non-profits it isn't as secure for for people uh, that really struggle with keeping a roof over their heads because they do have to to break even so that it's it's much easier to be evicted from community housing we need both and we we also need significant alternatives uh, for models of tenure in the middle of the market. So uh, more secure long-term rentals like they have in Europe that are operated by institutional investors that aren't chasing a short-term capital gain and negative gearing, negatively gearing their losses, but are actually looking at investing in large-scale rental properties that will bring them a return and provide secure housing to people that are never going to buy. There's an awful lot of uh, social engineering that is actually happening using the policies that are in uh, place at the moment. Uh, it's often depicted as if it's a, a free market, but in actual fact, the results are actually quite uh, a blunt instruments in social engineering. Oh. So what oh, you've got absolutely. is young people or people from 40 years old down are being completely kept out of the housing market because their wages are so low they cannot buy into the housing market can correct they? yeah absolutely we've created a, a society now and again our research shows that at the point the capital gains tax discount was introduced that's when house prices took off sharply and diverged from wage growth so what we've created is a society which Australia never wanted to be. We, we prided ourselves on being a nation of homeowners where working people could get a decent life through hard work. We've now created a society where if you don't have the bank of mum and dad, you don't inherit money or get a, or a, a gift or a loan from your parents who already are in the market and have capital, you cannot afford to buy a decent home just off the fruits of your work, of the fruits of your labour. That absolutely must be addressed. Uh, we do not want to be a country in which home ownership depends on being born to the right parents, and that's where we've got to. Now, that is absolutely social engineering, and the tax policies that have encouraged investor speculation in the property market over the last 20 to 30 years are... Are, are a market distortion and a market intervention. Um, and they have been so in the interests of the already wealthy. The next thing, of course, is that those people who have been able to buy a house or put money down on a house using the bank mum and dad are now paying such exorbitant uh, payments, they're in such debt, that yes. as one person said at your lecture, that they can't have a child because they can't afford mm. to. Yes, it's, it's actually having a huge impact on young people's life decisions. So our report estimates that 
for anyone born sort of after 1990, um, home ownership rates by the time they reach 40 will, will be about 55%. And the historical average in Australia is more like 70. So you're talking about a huge chunk of people who are locked out that uh, in previous generations weren't. And it's preventing them doing things like starting a family. People want a secure home when they want to have a family. Uh, and if they can't buy until they're in their 40s or 50s, then that those years of having a family are behind them. Um, and there's no alternative for them either because people, people don't want to, to have children when they may be kicked out of their rental property every 12 months. So until we have more secure tenants rights and longer term um, uh, rental agreements in place, there's no alternative for people. So it is having an impact, a significant impact on the life chances and the opportunities of younger people. It's, it's a form of generational theft. And at the other end of the life course, of course, we see a big impact on older women as well. Um, and that's often women uh, or people, but, but, but often dominantly women, who've lost their home through a, a divorce or separation and can't afford to get back into the market and don't have enough years then to start over because house prices are so high. The key thing here is to note that 20 years ago, the average mortgage, the average new mortgage taken out in Australia for a home was $200,000. That was about 30 years ago. That was about uh, two and a half times the average income. It's now $600,000, which is six times than that, the average income. So uh, we, we're creating a debt level on, on new home buyers that is unsustainable. And as we start to see interest rates rise, as we, we are now seeing, uh, a lot of those uh, loans will become unaffordable and people will either sell or go into negative equity. I mean, it's fascinating that you've done this research because the uh, rhetoric that comes from the uh, federal government has always been centred on it's an individual's uh, lot to uh, mm. change their um, uh, future. But in actual fact, they've created a system that is makes that a lie. Mm. Precisely. They have, and they, pay, they continue to pay lip service to the great Australian dream while uh, enacting policies that put it increasingly out of reach for, for ordinary people. Um, and I think young, younger people are awake to this, right? They know what's happened, and they know uh, that their chances of having just an, a normal, secure suburban home in which to raise a family are much, much lower than they were for their parents or grandparents. And they feel betrayed by that, and rightly so. Well, someone told me the other day that uh, he bought a house in in the 1980s and it was $100,000. That same house, he's now divorced, and that, that same house is now valued at $2.2 million. Yep, and that, that's not an unusual tale. Um, it, buying a, a, a normal suburban two- or three-bedroom home in a suburb that's an easy commute of a job in the city now is, is going to set you back a couple of million dollars. First home, very few first home buyers are buying detached houses. They're buying units and, and townhouses and we don't make enough of them. We don't build enough of those medium density properties that a, a young family can get a start in. Um, so there's a, su a supply side issue here as well. Our, our housing stock has been determined by the needs of developers who want to build cheap units that they can make maximum profits off. And that's why we've had such a massive amount of student accommodation over the last 20 years or so. Um, there's not as much profit to be made in a medium density uh, development in a suburb. Uh, if you can put six or eight or ten apartments 
onto a block instead of two or three townhouses, then as a developer, you're going to do it. But that's not meeting the needs of, of first home buyers and of downsizers that are looking to, to get in or stay in the market. Another anecdote, of course, for me is that someone I know personally, they, they're intending to try and buy a house in England because it's cheaper. Yes, absolutely. You, um, from a personal anecdote for me, I could sell uh, the place I've lived in for the last 10 years and live mortgage-free in England in a, in a detached house that's considerably bigger than the apartment I've been living in for the last 10 years and uh, did recently move home. Um, property prices in Australia are amongst the highest in the world. Of the top 12 most expensive markets, we have three of them and Sydney's number three behind only Hong Kong um, and, and Vancouver in Canada, which are outliers in many ways. Um, so there are people now saying, well, I've got dual citizenship. I'll buy a house in, the country, in another country and continue to rent here. Uh, because even the strategy that a lot of younger people have taken over the last decade or so of buying in a regional area and renting in the city is becoming out of reach because regional property prices have skyrocketed in the last two years as well. So those are rational decisions people are making, um, but it doesn't provide them with the security of, of a family home where they want to live. And I suppose as an aside, for people who live in the country traditionally, uh, their house values will go up and then their rates will go up and then a whole lot of those people who've lived there for generations will be pushed out. And then we're already seeing that happen, Annie, in some you know key coastal cities. Um, as as people moved out of, particularly in Victoria, as people moved out of Melbourne during the pandemic to get a bit more space, and decided, well, I can work from home three days a week, so I'll move, you know, to a nice uh, country town or seaside town, push the property prices up considerably, push the rates up. Um, and then locals, essential workers in those towns, can no longer afford uh, to rent or buy uh, within within the city that they work in. So that kind of um, internal migration is also significantly um, pushing out, out people from key regional centres. Let's get on to the uh, lack of uh, legal framework for cooperatives because that's another way of changing people's uh, futures, isn't it, in the housing area? It is. It is. And, and Percab has done a lot of work on co-ops over the years and cooperative housing is, is a, a really terrific option in the Netherlands, for example. Um, so a few, there, are, there aren't many countries in the OECD now that have lower home ownerships rates than Australia. Other than the US, they're all Nordic countries, and that's because they have alternative models like co-ops. So cooperative housing is a really fantastic model for people who don't necessarily, who can't necessarily, um, you know, buy a freestanding property on their own. But we know there are groups at the moment in Castlemaine and in Ballarat particularly older women coming together trying to form housing co-ops and we don't have uh, they can't access finance because the way that our banking system is structured the way our lending rules are structured um, and all of the regulations around home loans uh, make it impossible for people to come together um, and really uh, you know develop cooperative models of housing so Quite apart from the, the public policy settings around around taxation and around supply, there are also issues um, with our with our financial regulation that need looking at if we're going to be able to develop some of these models. Sixty percent of Australian banking retail banking activity is in property, is in residential property, and that's very very high by world standards. It's it's only twenty percent, for example, in the UK. So our banks and our financial system is also locked into this this um, paradigm in which 
property and land is all about amassing more wealth and not about providing homes to people. So we need significant reforms if we're going to make some of these alternative tenure models viable. Uh, would you call it lazy capitalism? <laughs> <laughs> it is, and it's well. It's what happens. Not a, it's not just the market being let to rip, as you said. It, it's by design. A lot of this has been by policy design or policies being, you know, um, bolted onto each other without this, without a, a, an adequate focus on ensuring people have a decent home, um, because the market wants to make money. Capitalism is about increasing wealth. And when we apply that to the housing market, guess what? Uh, values go up and wealth goes up, but it's unevenly distributed. And what a uh, whole cry with all of this work and the VNF uh, Enterprise Housing Foundation as well and per capita both believe really strongly that the number one thing we want to do is change the national conversation so that we start thinking again about housing as primarily a home, a decent home for people, not just a way of making money. If, you're, if, if we get to the point where our policies are targeted at ensuring first and foremost that everyone has a decent home and then there's the capacity to still make some money off the market, there will be, that's fine. But government policies shouldn't be targeted at increasing the wealth of existing homeowners and particularly investors at the expense of people's housing security. Well, we know where we're going, but we don't know where we've been. And we know what we're knowing, but we can't say what we've seen. And we're not little children, and we know what we Give us time to
from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. So we're here to, you know, be more active in our voice and have Richard Wynn listen to us. Um, can you explain to people here what's going on at Wellington Street? My name's Albie Clark. I've actually been living on the estate for more than 20 years. So what we're here today to do is we've been trying to work with the government for the last two years, cooperating in the focus groups and, and trying to express what we need in our community. They've promised us that this is not going to affect our open space, our footprint for the open space is going to remain. Well, that may be the case, but what they plan on doing by building another 152 units in this space is they're landing another 500 to 600 residents in the same space which we've got to share with. At the same time, they're proposing on building this where there's already existing residents, especially the Emerald Street block, which is our 55-year-old-plus residential block, the most vulnerable in our community. They're going to have to live, now after two years of lockdown and COVID, another two years of building construction six days a week, from 7am in the morning until whenever they finish at night. The constant noise and the banging. Now the park that they're building it on at the moment is a, a well utilised park where a lot of the residents and mothers and their children for 240, it's their only place that they can go to access a green space. So where are they supposed to go to during this construction? They're going to be trapped in their homes because it won't be appropriate for them to be on a construction site. I mean, I've been down there. How can they say that it's not going to interrupt your green space? There isn't that much green space. No. Well, whilst it is car park area that they're going to take over a lot of and they're going to put the promised more car parks underneath once the construction is finished, where are the people going to park? Where are they going to be able to drop off their children, their shopping? The carers are supposed to have access to the elderly people as well. How are they going to be able to park in those areas? And these are the questions we've been asking them and been consulting with Homes Victoria for a long time now. And it's just got to the point where we're getting new messages in the media that this is a foregone conclusion. Yet at the same time, Homes Victoria say, no, it's not. Well, when you've got Homes Victoria and people from the big build actually on site with their measurements and, and gauges and all their equipment being prepared, ready, they've already made their mind up. Uh, we we in, in public housing, we want more housing. We want more social housing. But you've got to put it in the right place. Putting it in the middle of an already existing overcrowded community is not the right way to go. I tell you now, people will die in that Emerald Street block if they have to go through the pressure of this build. That's what I've got to say. Can you Thank tell you. us about the consultation? The consultation was done by uh, outsourced by the Homes Victorian and uh, the big build. I myself actually was involved in that to encourage residents to sit down with the builders and talk about the construction. Um, we went with an open mind and, uh, and, and uh, good, of all good intentions to actually, we got involved in the consultation to encourage as many residents to participate as well. If it was to be built, what we would require, what would be needed, what would actually help us. But then they never ever gave us the opportunity to turn around and say, no, this is not an appropriate spot to build. It was all about they wanted the positive message, nothing about the negative message. And that's what they got out of the consultation. When they finished the report of the consultation, they made a number of claims that they'd been in consultation, for example, with the Indigenous people on this estate. They had not. So now, finally, uh, they've been pressed into actually talking with our local Indigenous people who also don't want the build there. So, um, 
that's, that's all I really got to say, but um, yeah, thank you for all coming today. to be organising around this issue, particularly with the election coming up, not only state but federal. Um, it's pretty simple really, we have a complete lack of affordable housing, whether it's public, whether it's private or whether it's community um, models and it's a really clear example of the desperate attempts at the government to try and remove even more of it, um, even more of what we should all deserve to have which isn't just a roof over our heads, it's our homes, it's our environments, it's our community. Um, and we know that the Collingwood Flats and the public housing flats across Victoria were integral in the last couple of years to make sure we had a community, uh, we had spaces to, to create mutual aid, to create food and like place for people. Um, so the fact that this is being lost is a huge ma on, on, on this current government and also a huge loss to the communities um, that they've supported. When, when COVID hit, like the, <laughs> what was available to each other was really, really lost. Um, and it was amazing to see people who had like public housing um, be able to open the doors for even more people um, to support more communities. So like we, in Rahu, in the Renton Housing Union, we've stood very, very strongly on our position from the moment we formed that we need to improve and expand public housing. It, it's not enough to just say that you're building community models. We need public because we know it works. We know that it's worked in the 70s. And we, we will absolutely continue to demand that. Um, and we want to keep growing our membership to represent the 30% of renters across Victoria, across Australia, to make sure we can actually fight back as a union together. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us about the petition? The petition has been online, and if you go to the change.org or Google, um, Collingwood Save Our Public Open Space, we got to 1500, which is a pretty big effort. So thank you very much everyone for, for doing that. You know, we're here together to make some noise. I'm sure Richard Wynn's probably in there in the back somewhere. <laughs> oh no, the blind's down, but he's probably in there, you know? So, you know, we are gonna hand this, this in. <laughs> knock, knock, knock. Um, whether what happens today, we're gonna keep on pushing and saying no to this to this new build, you know? Yes. They want to erect, they want to get rid of our parkland, they want to get rid of play equipment that's 50 years old. It's a joke, like, why are we building more housing when we can't even facilitate what we need to facilitate as a community? Why can't they build it in the car park that's across the road? 100%. Yeah. Why can't they build it somewhere else? So, Why are they selling off government assets for private gain? Yes. It's not yes. their asset to sell. Yes. Why did they go over the head of Richmond Council, over the mayor? They just took a bite of the cherry. Mm. And once they've got this cherry, they're just going to prey on every housing yes. estate across inner Melbourne. Yes. And people yeah. are dying on the street homeless, yeah. and they can't afford social housing. Richmond.
So what's going on now? You've been so we're going to hand in our petition to Richard Wynn, Wynn's office to let him know exactly um, our voice and that we're not happy. You know, we've said it verbally to him, face to face. Written to him. We've written to him. We've called him on the phone. He came out sneakily. He snuck onto the estate last, last Friday week. and didn't bother Sorry. to even come and see or consultate with any of us. All he wanted to see was about co-health in their program with giving clothing out at 240 Wellington Street. Knowing all of this and was going on in the background, he didn't have the, the audacity to turn around and be with us. We championed Richard Wynn. He was one of the heroes of public housing in Collingwood for many, many years. I would say more than a decade. And now he will be leaving his government and retiring, and this is the, the legacy that he's going to be leaving us in Collingwood. It's a disgrace. It's not good I, enough. I am disappointed. I am so sad that this is what it's come to. Mm. Because he was what I called a friend. Public house. Yeah, and where's our friend now? Our friend is leaving. Our friend's gone, so... How many signatures have you got? Over 1,500 signatures. We've got over 1,500 signatures, so thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for your presence here. Thank you for your time. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but, you know, the lights are on and it's out. He could be out back, but, um, you know, this is a mighty effort. Thank you, thank you so much, everyone, for coming down and being a part of this. We're not going to stop. We're not going to stop. So the state government's plan is to build two eight-storey apartment buildings over the open space of the Wellington Street side of the Collingwood Public Housing Estate. There's one building which is going to be over the basketball courts, over the grass area, the picnic area, over the place where children play basically. And that's what the government calls affordable housing. Now affordable housing, under the national definition, is 80% of market rate, which is pretty much unaffordable for most people in Collingwood. The other, the other um, building is going to be social housing, and they're building that over the current car park. 
And to do that, they're relocating the car park to the underground space on the other side of the estate, which for 23 years has been used as a community space led by the residents. So there's the Collingwood Underground Roller Disco, there's the only queer black gym space there, Second Chance Cycles refurbishes cycles to give to public housing residents, and there are countless concerts and exhibitions by residents and other people there. So it's a really important community space, they're turning that into a car park. So the impact on the residents is going to be very widely felt. Um, so the residents have uh, organised a petition. It's received up to date 1,500 signatures from residents and, and the community. And the petition asks Minister Wynne, the Minister for Housing, and the Legislative Assembly to cancel the plans to build over their open space. This is their garden, this is their playground. They don't have balconies or, or garden spaces. This is so important to their mental health and their well-being. And we saw after two years of lockdown how important open space was. And now the Victorian Labor government wants to just build straight over all of that. So um, don't build here, but we want, the, the petition says, we want more public housing. We want more public housing, but how it's done really matters. There are so many pieces of land that the state government owns that is much more appropriate for development. And the state government has sold something like 578 hectares of public land to private developers. So they're in no short supply of public land to build public housing on. But instead they're building um, private, part, pub, private public partnership model housing over public housing land and it's just not on. The public housing residents here and the broader community will fight this development because it is inappropriate and it's trampling all over the rights of public housing residents. What's your name? My name's Gabrielle Devietri. And where are you from? Um, I am a, a Yarra City Councillor and I'm also the um, Greens candidate for the state election in um, the Richmond electorate.
Listening to 3CR Radio. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Listener, when we discovered politics has nothing to do with politics. An absolute truth revealed by no less an expert than big supremo Scuttlebim Morlashson, a.k.a. Scummo himself. Reflecting an annoyance we regularly hear from politicians about those who challenge them. They're bringing politics into it. Politicians understandably get so upset when people bring politics into politics. So grossly unfair, its most unfair disadvantage is it can force politicians to justify, or at least attempt to justify, their positions and arguments. Not that Scomo had to justify his position or argument when it came to that interest rate increase this week, an interest in which he wished he had no interest, but which conformed to his commitment to keep politics out of politics, telling us an interest rate rise 18 days before an election has nothing to do with politics, is not political, but reflects the magnificent job his government has done. Well, he personally has done reflects the strength of the economy. Families faced with a mortgage increase enjoying the benefits of that strong economy. So presumably, the years in which interest rates have either fallen or remained stagnant reflected a weak economy. That's what we'd presume, listener, but it's not true, because Scummo and his big economic guru, Josh Fried of Icebergs, and earlier, Scummo himself, and tiny a bit more for the bosses, big economic guru, Joe Hackey, the workers, assured us low interest rates reflected a strong economy. So I guess the only presumption we can make is that interest rates, high or low, reflect a strong economy, just because they're there. Anyway, whatever those with mortgages are praising Scummo and the team for the strong economy and can't wait, guess they'll have to pre-poll, to cast their grateful vote for the team which brought them the non-political rate rise. Although it obviously has created a few problems for the poor banks. Tuesday night, the news reported they had not adopted the rate increase for loans and mortgages, generous souls, but thankfully they were able to work out the equations overnight, and by morning news, all four had increased their rate identically, the great benefits of competition policy. But the problem still is obviously it's far more difficult to calculate the equation when it comes to them increasing the interest they pay on deposits because they haven't yet worked that one out. They remain at roughly 0% or minus, and the difficulty in adjusting their systems to pay their depositors an increase must be so distressing for them. Clearly, they'll back pay it when they work it out, if, if they can work it out. Displaying his compassionate nature, Scummo pleaded with the banks to give pensioners a fair go. Admirable sentiment, Although it can't be a simple problem to solve, otherwise we'd be sure Scummo, after nine years of caring business class government, would have done something about it himself. Like they promise real wages will increase after the election. Something they're so concerned about, so concerned that figures this week show the stagnant wage problem that does so concern them has occurred between 2013 and 2022. 
which, yes, what a coincidence, just happens to coincide with the caring business class party government, which is so concerned. Nine years concerned that workers might get a pay rise, but only because not getting a pay rise is good for the economy and therefore good for the workers who don't get that pay rise. Showing what a delicate flower is the economy, the greatest little economic order of them all. So the promise of a pay rise after the election poses serious threats for the economy. And, and if we have any doubts about that, just ask our old mate Innes Will Cost, the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, who worries and ponders day after day, night after night, over the problem of slow wages growth, but just cannot see a solution that does not harm the economy. Poor Innes. On such matters, we commented last week on that stroke of bad luck for Scummo that the day after he used a ream factory as a prop to announce how he would create thousands of jobs, thousands and thousands he hasn't created these past nine years, ream announced it was heading for Vietnam to enjoy the benefits of cheap labour, creating a few more true blue jobs Scummo has to come up with. Well, then he promised hostile to workers' ships in Fremantle $124 million to build train-killer patrol boats. And again, just a stroke of bad luck that next day the evil electrical trade union... Why can't these people mind their own business? ETU revealed hostile to workers had been convicted for underpaying 30 Filipino workers. Electricians, welders and pipe fitters paying them under the award rate as little as $11 an hour for a 48-hour week, including Saturdays with no overtime or penalty rates. To compound the union's evil and disrespect for authority, Acting Secretary Michael Wright claimed, <coughs> this is outrageous, listener, claimed, Scummo has a fondness for posing in high vis, but when it comes to supporting the income and job security of the workers or stopping visa exploitation, he is completely missing in action. How cruel. OK, OK, it might have paid for Scummo to brush up on his background checking before opening his mouth, but he, but he wants workers to earn more. He says so. He just can't work out how. And obviously, poor merchant of death hostile to workers would have paid under the award $11 an hour, 48-hour week, including Saturdays, no overtime or penalty rates, inadvertently, totally inadvertently. The election itself... We should check with Scummo to see if the election has anything to do with politics. We, we'll report back on that one next week. Election itself continues to grip the nation with the big issues reflected in the ads flooding our screens. The caring business class party says it won't be easy with Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albingusi elbow. And the Socialist Party says Scummo makes too many mistakes. See? The big issues, big ideas for the nation, vision, which makes it all the more surprising that the undecided party just keeps increasing its vote. Although Scummo did promise that a caring business class government would make it a crime to use or create any item coloured teal. Uh, but a Scummo, your man Dave Slammer, the Palestinians, is using teal in his material. Oh, yes, yes, poor Dave is colourblind. Uh, and he forgot to mention he is the caring business class party candidate. Uh, yes, yes, poor Dave has a major memory problem. Uh, then, then why should people vote for him? Because Dave is a brilliant member of my government. 
partner. And why do you want to ban Teal? It is an ugly, ugly, ugly you that makes the mistake of bringing poetics into poetics. Well, if that's the case, we, we can't blame him. And, and Anthony did, did use May Day to promise heaps of handouts for housing. Uh, so at last, the government will address the massive need for public housing, Elbo? Uh, no, no, we don't want to waste the public's money on public housing. Uh, our policy will load lots more troubler Aussie families with a mortgage. Well, that's good, because with interest rates rising and rising and rising, they'll know they are enjoying a strong economy, uh, which will be a lot stronger under an elbow government. We will give them a better future. Then Anthony had a scamper to read out his policy on the NDIS, and Scummo and the baying media screamed. This showed he didn't know what he was talking about. Scummo reminding us that he plays it safe when it comes to remembering these things. You, you can't forget a policy if you haven't got one. He looked very pleased with himself. That out-of-control militant trade union leader Wayne Gat lost protesters of the... Sorry, the Police Association. Association? Throwing up the question of why anyone would want to associate with any of them. But that aside, Paul Wayne is so upset at Green Senator Lydia Thorpe for verbally giving it to Wayne's members during a protest against the deportation of 12 detainees, in which she complained about police manhandling and pushing women, including herself. An absolute disgrace looking up innocent people, she yelled. Wayne said her behaviour was unacceptable. She has no right to object to, you know, like being manhandled and pushed around. He spoke for decent, responsible people, which wouldn't have happened if, like, these people weren't there, you know, protesting. Good point. And Wayne added no embellishment. Sadly, our members have become accustomed to being the backdrop for opportunistic acts of grandstanding. Yes, that opportunistic grandstander Lydia Thorpe. Please, he said, he really said this, have no involvement in these issues, just doing their job. Perhaps we should point out to Wayne that if they had no involvement, they wouldn't be there. Their job is to be involved on behalf of the system and class they're employed to protect from anti-social elements like Lydia Thorpe, who support miscreants like no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people or petty criminals being deported to a country they know stuff all about. So well done, Wayne. The working class movement is proud of you. And top marks to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin for its balanced objective coverage of the election. Well, what more would we expect? Exemplified in its headline covering that story. Bant refuses to condemn Vic Senator's shameful act. Police cop file green abuse. No marks for guessing where that story was going, although a tough one. Did Lord Rupert sympathise more with Wayne or Lydia? Leave you to think that one through, listener. Celebrating the mooted US of Supreme Court banning of abortion, the state-caring business class party's Bernie Fine Jesus said there should be no exemption for rape victims who fall pregnant. Babies should not be punished for the crimes of their mother or father, he argued with his renowned logic. Not sure that Bernie has tweaked, but there aren't too many male rapists who end up pregnant. So the rape victim must be punished for being raped. But then followers of the dear baby Jesus, like Bertie, know it's a man's world. To prove the point, the dear baby himself had to be born to a virgin. For the dear baby, no woman stayed by having sex. 
And the incredible thing is, Joseph the carpenter believed it, that she was knocked up by a Holy Spirit. Finally, the Minister for Fossils, Keith Pitpody, has been challenged in his erstwhile safe Queensland seat by a former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party state, sorry, a police minister and current mayor over, surprisingly, climate change if there is such a thing. And one commentator suggested Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle had not visited the electorate, indicating they weren't too worried about it. But on the other hand, we might suggest keeping Barnacle out shows they're very worried about it. Good morning. Yeah, you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast. And that, of course, was the uh, scintillating Kevin Healy. Uh, This is the week that was. And uh, we're going to finish up the program with... uh, uh, a rally outside, uh, lots of rallies this week, uh, outside the Brunswick Town Hall because uh, Moreland Workers, ASU, as well as a Municipal Workers Union, are fed up with uh, being offered below inflation increases in their wages. Let's hear what they've got to say. We're outside uh, Brunswick Town Hall in Moreland and uh, local uh, uh, ASU members are concerned about uh, the intractable negotiations for a better deal. G'day, um, I'm Lisa Darman, the Branch Secretary of the ASU and our members here at Moreland City Council are uh, on strike today um, to fight for a better deal in their enterprise agreement. We um, have been negotiating, the workers here haven't had a pay rise for two years and negotiations stalled about six months ago and our members have had enough. Um, the wage offer is currently 2%, which is, um, you know, well well low, lower than uh, the cost of living at the moment. And it's a we, wages cut. It's absolutely a wages cut. And so our members are pretty angry about that. Um, you know, during the last two years, workers at City of Moreland along with our members across all councils in Victoria, have really stepped up to look after the community during the pandemic. When everyone, you know, was working from home, our members were still out looking after um, aged and um, vulnerable members of the community in their homes. Uh, Librarians continue to deliver books to residents um, and look after people's mental health. And we had our parks and gardens and waste and street people all continuing to keep our communities safe. Um, out and about um, when everyone was scared about catching the virus they continue to work and continue to look after the community as long as um, all the other support staff who adjusted all their activities um, working from home and you know we want to see councils really value that work appreciate it like the community does um, and part of that is by um, improving their wages and conditions. Okay, so you've taken, uh, they've stopped work from 1pm for today. Well, the operations centre staff, parks and gardens, maintenance, waste, street sweepers, they stopped work, they've stopped work at, um, from this morning, so they've been off all day. Uh, and the rest of the staff have stopped from one o'clock this afternoon. I'm told that um, all but the Glenroy Library is open. All the rest of the libraries across the municipality have been shut down and all the staff are here. So let's, let's get on to the libraries. We're talking about uh, wanting a, a, a proper span, a regular span of hours. Explain that. Yep. So library start, libraries, as people would know, work weekends and uh, on weekends. And at night and yep. very early. And yep. Yes, that's right. You should get penalty rates. 
Unfortunately, the library workers at City of Moreland are not treated like all the other workers at council and they do not get the same penalty rates. So um, what we're asking for is them to be treated the same as everybody else at council and get the penalty rates for working weekends and um, late nights. How did that happen? No I idea. Don't know. I don't know how that happened, um, but we're trying to fix it. Yeah, right. Okay. And uh, there are 40 outstanding uh, uh, sections of the agreements that you want looked at. Can you give us some idea of what that means? Oh, look, there's a whole range of things, um, additional allowances, changes to the paid parental leave arrangements, um, stuff around bullying and harassment. Um, just to name a few, but you know they sort of go to different parts of the work. You know, local government is a really diverse workforce, and there's you know more than um, 200 different kinds of jobs done in the sector. So some of them are quite specific to the work. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. And also, uh, the um, how are negotiations going? Obviously, if we're out on the street, they're not going very well. But um, is this a? Do you need them to actually um, become more? Uh, open-handed? Well, we, you know, we'd love to um, get back to the negotiating table and um, see if we can sort this out. Uh, I'm hopeful that following today's action um, that management will see that our members are committed to continuing to fight for a better deal and what they think is on offer doesn't cut the mustard. And so we're ready, willing and able to keep negotiating so that we can reach something that's acceptable to everybody. Do you, do you find that the local councils are surprised that uh, because uh, that uh, workers are becoming so concerned and are taking to the union to negotiate these outcomes because they are the people who deliver the services to the local communities and have uh, in the past been very, um, you know, uh, I suppose able to be pushed around? Yeah, look, um, I think... Our members have been really heartened that the support from the local community and the public has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, and I think what this does is it shines a light on perhaps what people take for granted about what our members do every day to make people's lives better. Whether it's keeping the streets clean, safe and tidy, or you know, um, safe places for people to learn and um, socialise and um, gather like libraries or um, have them being looked after in their homes. Like it's only when those things go wrong that people think, oh, well, what's going on here? Um, and perhaps this will give a new appreciation for all of these members of ours who, without their hard work, we would not have such beautiful places to live. Thanks. So, uh, are you a, a Moreland resident? Yes, I live in Brunswick West. And so you're here in support of the workers? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen so much activity on social media in the last few weeks. Lots of residents saying they support the workers. Some people suggesting they need to clean up the mess and others saying, no way, don't break the picket. <laughs> um, so, uh, it's very unfair, isn't it, that uh, the uh, negotiations don't appear to be um, showing... Um, how important these workers are. I think that's right. I think we see the rate of inflation is massive this year and the pay rise, they're, pay rise they're asking for is reasonable. They need to feed their families and, you know, what we're seeing is the council stonewalling that. It's not good enough. And, you know, my daughter and I use the local library, the Campbell Turnbull. The staff are brilliant and we want to make sure that they can remain in their jobs. Thank you very much. I'm going to hand it over now to... 
couple of our delegates to speak to you about what they think about all this. And uh, they are the real heroes. So a round of applause for all the delegates who are here. Without them, all of these people wouldn't be here today, and um, we, were, we wouldn't get a good outcome, and we will. Tishan. Okay. Good afternoon, comrades. My name's Tishan. I'm a delegate here at Mormons Libraries. I work at Brunswick Library. Thank you so much for coming out and supporting us. I'm proud to say... I'm proud to say that we are on strike. We have walked out from work and we are foregoing and we are foregoing pay today to fight for better paying conditions for all workers. How quickly we went from essential to expendable. We were essential throughout the pandemic, providing essential services to our community. But now, now we're expendable. Now we're not worth a fair pay rise. Now we're not worth decent conditions that protect our health and safety. We're not worth that anymore. Yes, you are. <laughs> so thank you for showing up and showing that we are essential, not expendable. Just before I pass over to Brett, our next delegate, uh, who's here from the Moreland Council Depot, I want to give a shout out to our members up at the depot. There's not a huge amount of them here. And the reason for that is they've been standing on a picket line at the Moreland Depot since about three o'clock this morning, absolutely holding fast. So they've been standing there shoulder to shoulder with their comrades uh, across the ASU, blocking every gate to the depot, making sure none of the uh, contractors that council have been calling in to do their work can get in or out. So he's here again for the demo across the room. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd like to say um, I've been here for City of Brunswick, City of Moreland from the 29th of March 1984. That's when I started. Right. I've seen Jeff Kennett with his um, competitive tendering cuts, right? We worked through that, we beat him, right? I've seen a two-year pandemic with COVID where we've turned up every day and soldiered up and looked after our community. And I've been here where our management thought that their staff was their best asset, right? We're going to send them a message that we're still their best asset and they need to pay us what we deserve. Now, from my point of view, I look here, I see my comrades. We're a community and we're a community ready to fight. Right? Here's for solidarity and good on you. So the next person we've got speaking, and we're very, very happy to have her here, is one of the councillors at Moreland City Council. Before, so, she probably doesn't need a whole lot of introduction, but I'm not going to tell you a lot about what Sue Bolton is, but I'll tell you what she isn't. 
She's not the kind of councillor who turns up to a meeting of unionists in the morning and says that they might have hired a van to pick up rubbish, but if we ask them, they will not go and do it, and then features on the Seven News that night, out in the streets, picking up the waste that our workers are refusing to do to try and break our strike. Well, you know who I'm talking about, but I'm very, very, very happy to introduce Sue Bolden, who is a long-term friend and ally of the ASU. Uh, and Sue, please, we're more than welcome here. that all the workers have taken today. Yeah. This is so important because we've got all these anti-union laws that are used to intimidate workers out of taking action. So every time workers take action like you have today, it's another step forward to fight back against attempts to intimidate workers out of defending their rights. As has been said already, you all kept the council services running throughout the pandemic and other crises as well, before and in the future. And when I, and when I was out at the depot at the picket line this morning, I was chatting to one of the delegates who was talking about the job they do, um, street cleansing, starting work at 3.30 in the morning. Now, I've done a job which started at 3.30 in the morning. I used to be a truck driver for a period of time, and it's very hard to actually get enough sleep to get up to start work at 3.30 in the morning. And, and what that shows, I mean, I'm sure there's many workers across the council in the same boat, where people don't necessarily see the work they do. And in the case of workers starting at 3.30 and 5am and so forth in the morning when a lot of workers are tucked up in bed, they're carrying out really essential work for the whole community. And, you know, I, th I think that is really, really important that those workers are doing that and they shouldn't be kicked in the gut just because their work isn't necessarily seen by everyone. We take it for granted, but it's not seen by everybody. Now. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And during the pandemic, there was a little period, especially during the lockdowns, where suddenly the work of so many workers was suddenly visible. And I would swear that a lot of the work that everyone here is doing today is a lot more socially useful than a lot of bosses. Yeah. And it's especially good to see blue collar and white collar workers here united. Yeah. Because often that's what managers and bosses do. They put a wedge between blue and white collar workers. So, so that people are against each other and they can offer a little special deal here so that uh, in order to um, kick another group of workers in the guts. So I think unity across the council, across all the workers is super important in this. And, and as people are saying about the skyrocketing prices, the cost of living, now this started before the pandemic. 
pandemic. So our wages have been going backwards since before the pandemic. And it's just been exacerbated during the pandemic. It's not some act of God that's caused this. It's because our wages have been artificially held down by governments and bosses that are trying to drive our wages into the ground while prices are going up. And also on rate capping, I mean, it is a serious issue for councils, but it shouldn't be used as an excuse to block workers getting fair pay. Yeah. Because you could say, um, if you use that excuse, that's no different to all of the bosses that say, oh, we're struggling, we've got hard times, we can't afford pay rises, we have to thieve your wages. Um, so it's no different to what some unions have described a lot of bosses as doing as having a business model that's based on not paying workers properly. So we shouldn't accept this. So what, rate capping is a separate issue. That, that shouldn't be used as an excuse not to give workers at this council or any other council fair pay and conditions. And lastly, I'd like to say, we also have to get rid of these anti-union laws because they're driving us backwards. We, we need to get rid of these laws because they're intimidating far too many workers into not joining their unions or into not taking action to defend themselves. And what people have done here today is also contributing not just to your own struggle, but also gives confidence to other workers who see the action you're taking and might give them the confidence to take action as well. So this is part of a bigger struggle to, to give workers the confidence across the board to take action, to defend their rights. So lastly, I'd like to just end on an old slogan of the workers' movement. The workers, united, will never be defeated. The workers. Last speaker, or before I hog the limelight again, uh, no stranger to a megaphone. We're very happy to have Brunswick local Luke Hilakari from Victorian Trades Hall here with us today. Good day, comrades. It is so good to see so many brothers and sisters taking action today. On behalf of the Victorian Trades Hall Council and every unionist across Victoria, no, let's say across the whole country, you have our 100% support. And we'll leave that there. That was outside the Brunswick uh, Town Hall on Wednesday last week. Uh, so, yeah, it is right. This is a fight on for uh, proper pay, uh, stopped uh, slashing people's wages, offering below inflation uh, increases when uh, the big end of town is raking it in. Uh, you'll have noticed that there was large uh, May Day rallies in the Northern Territory and in Queensland particularly, and Tasmania, uh, probably over in Western Australia, South Australia as well. But uh, that was notable because of uh, our uh, very vocal chorus around uh, wages caps for the uh, public service in all of the states. Uh, anyway, uh, the fight's on leading into the federal election. Uh, 
I'm uh, going to uh, uh, give a little bit of a lowdown of what the uh, program included today. We talked to Emma Dawson, CEO per capita, about the housing affordability report that's just come out. Uh, we went outside Richard Wynne's office on Friday. Uh, he's the housing minister uh, and uh, the in the Victorian government and the people from the uh, 240 Wellington Street uh, who are um, really, really quite angry about the idea of two eight-storey buildings being built over their car park and their green space. If you go down there, you'll find that actually... There's not a lot of green space down there, so very optimistic uh, push by uh, Homes Victoria, uh, the uh, Victorian Government Social Housing Initiative. Uh, this is the week that was, and we, as I said, we were outside uh, Moreland Council with the ASU and the MWU workers. And uh, as it was pointed out by uh, Moreland Councillor um, uh, at the rally, that uh, uh, it was very nice to see uh, blue collar and white collar workers seeing that they have a common fight. We're going to go out with Nina Simone and Revolution, and uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Oh, shoot. Maybe we'll do them both, I don't know. Of all the evil it will have to end
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.